The spirit told Philip, Go to that chariot and stay near it. Then Philip ran up to the chariot and heard the man reading Isaiah the prophet. Do you understand what you are reading? Philip asked. How can I, he said, unless someone explains it to me. So he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. The eunuch was reading the passage of scripture. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter. And as a lamb before the shearer is silent, he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth. The eunuch then asked Philip, Tell me, please, who is the prophet talking about, himself or someone else? Then Philip began with that very passage of Scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. As they traveled along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, Lord, look, here is some water. Why shouldn't I be baptized? And he gave orders to stop the chariot. Then both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and Philip baptized him. When they came up out of the water, the, Philip of the, uh, the Spirit of the Lord suddenly took Philip away, and the eunuch did not see him again, but went his way, on his way rejoicing. Philip, however, appeared at Azotus and traveled about, preaching the gospel in all the towns until he reached Caesarea. Could you imagine the day in the life of Philip and the conversation that night around the dinner table? Hi, honey, I'm home. Oh, that's good. I've got a stew for you. Take a seat. No worries. How was your day? You're not going to believe it. Well, I've got plenty of time. Tell me about it. Okay. I was hanging out at Samaria and uh, it was great revival, massive church building there. It's really amazing. But all of a sudden, God told me to go out and go about 60 k's southwest down to Jerusalem and then beyond that, another few k's into the highway that goes down to Gaza. You know the one? Oh, yeah, the one on the way to the Philistine area. Yeah, that's right. So we're going down there and I hang out there and this guy from Ethiopia is coming down there on a chariot and he's reading the Bible, right? And he's reading the Bible about Jesus. And then I'm standing right there on the highway and he drives past and I ask him if he knew what he meant and he goes, I've got no clue, can you help me? So I get on the chariot and I'm riding with him down the highway for ages and I finally I start telling him about Jesus, tell the Bible, all that sort of stuff and he says, let me say yes to Jesus and here's some, and all of a sudden in the middle of the desert, there's a puddle and I baptize this guy, it's really cool and then I never saw him again. I wound up down on the west coast of Israel at Azotus and uh, now I'm here back home with you. How was your day, honey? This is like, this is, that's an amazing day in anyone's life. But what we're reading about here is another example of the ministry of Philip, who we know as Philip the Evangelist. That was clearly his role in the, in the story of Acts, and that was the role that he served in the life of the church there. And, uh, and now at this point, we've been looking at his work, and we've been exploring the concept of evangelism through Philip here from the perspective of gifting. So far, we've been looking at the gift of evangelism. This guy was a clearly gifted man. All right. I don't. I, I don't know about you and I, but we don't go in there and all of a sudden crowds just come around us and we lead them all to Jesus in one hit, right? It's a really. It seems like a very bizarre story. That's because this man has a gifting of evangelism of his life. By gifting, I mean this. Ephesians four eleven tells us that Christ gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and the teachers to equip His people for works of service, so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God, and we become mature, attaining the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. The passage lists five ministry types here in Ephesians, which scholars call ascension gifts. They're gifts given to the church after the ascension of Jesus Christ. And evangelism is listed in the five things here. People in the life of the church who are recognized with these sort of gifts are often seen as the go-to person in their ministry field. There are people who are, oh, if you want to know stuff, if you want to be taught something, go talk to that guy. He's got a great teaching gift. 
You know, or if you want to know how to reach a, a, a people group, talk to that person. They're an evangelist. You know what I mean? There's people who have go-to areas. And usually when we have conferences and things like that, usually people who have these gifts are brought in to impart the knowledge on to other people. In the 18th century, George Whitfield was definitely one of those men. In recent times, Reinhard Bonnke in Africa and uh, Billy Graham, of course, through the 50s and beyond. You know, these people are clearly gifted in the area of evangelism. And Philip in Acts 8 here is definitely one of those men. They're in the element leading people to Christ and Jesus uses them on a regular basis to do that. But in his infinite wisdom, Jesus didn't put the pressure of all the work onto these men. The other half of this, uh, this verse in, in, in Ephesians tells us that, that the evangelists and, and these other ministry gifts are gifted to the church to equip the rest of the church for the task of doing ministry. In this case, the task of personal evangelism. Okay, it's a gift to be imparted and not held on or carried, on, or carried alone. Okay, the gift may appear a bit exclusive, but the task is a universal one. And the one with the gift is supposed to impart knowledge so that everyone can do the task. That's the idea of the, of the ministry gifts here. So our featured text, what I've just read out here today, is a story of how the recognized evangelist, Philip, conducts himself in personal evangelism. It's a study of one man coming alongside one other person to present the gospel of Jesus Christ to them. A deliberate one-on-one conversation on the subject of Christianity. We don't have a record of everything that was said, but we can glean some very important principles of personal evangelism out of the interaction between Philip and this African man. So I'm going to give four basic principles about personal evangelism, some ideas to keep in the back of our minds when we have our one-on-one conversations. The idea of this example here is not so that Philip gets all the glory about you know, this African guy coming to Christ, but about how we can do the same thing. And, uh, and so here's some lessons in personal evangelism. One, the first principle of personal evangelism is this. Be prepared to go south. Very simple one. Be prepared to go south. The context of this passage is that Philip is in a really exciting place. He's tamed the wild beast. You know, there was a once wild and rocky spiritual terrain called Samaria. And he's the one who broke ground and went into that area and said the words Jesus, the Messiah, to a group of people. And suddenly the wellspring burst forth and suddenly you have a really vibrant church there. You know, what Jesus started with the woman at the well and other short interactions had been now cemented into the fabric of Samaritan society. The apostles of Jerusalem have come and gone and they've taken time to teach these people about how to live for Christ. And we can, at this stage, pretty much assume that that these people have become a little bit less infantile in their faith and they're becoming more independent. They're taking steps for themselves. They're not being spoon-fed the gospel. They're now learning a little bit more about what they believe. And the apostles have done a good job. And they came and they went. Peter and John were there and they would have imparted everything they had and then was only when they were satisfied they would have moved on the place that might have once been hostile is now a much friendlier place and philip is surrounded with a vibrant group of people who are believing the same things and saying and doing the same godly things as he would and you know the singleness of mind is there the spiritual joy is in the place it makes it feel like jerusalem has come and formed all over again in 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 samaria it's like all of a sudden everything has just become come alive again And for a guy like Philip, that's exactly the place he should not remain for an extended amount of time. 
There's great joy that occurs when revival strikes an area. But there is also a position of safety and comfort that can emerge. It can begin to snuff out the flame of passion that we have for the role of evangelism. It's possible to engage in a church life setting now. It's impossible to come into a church setting now and because everybody is vibrant and everybody's unified and this is a really great, amazing group of believers, we can come to the mindset that the job might be done. We can slip into the trap of thinking that. It's not where Jesus wants us to remain. The answer to Philip's comfortable state was two very shocking words delivered by an angel of the Lord. Go south. It was time for Philip to escape the comfort of the Samaritan church and go on to another place that the Spirit had ordained. And not just another relatively safe place either. Go to the desert road. The area he was being led to was exactly that. It was a rocky, inhospitable, and potentially hostile area southwest of Jerusalem. This was known as a, the, the, Gaza, the Gaza Road was actually a trade route. It was a known highway, and uh, it went down to the ancient city of Gaza. And Gaza, that ancient city of Gaza, was actually the southernmost uh, point of what used to be Philistine territory. So this is traditional enemy number one for a long time for the people of Israel anyway. And, he's, and even today, it's still a, a hotspot of t- that Gaza Strip area. That gives you an idea of the sort of location we're talking about. It was an environment where you had to be prepared for anything. By going down this road, you had no idea who was going to cross your path. We know how, to, how comfortable we can get in church life today. It's actually, you know, it becomes very you know, safe in certain places. And church is very safe, and we all like safety. It's a place where everyone agrees with us. It's, we have the roughly the same vocabulary. We all know each other. There's a great sense of unity and warmth and stuff like that. But there's a place sometimes in church where comfort can turn into complacency. And the answer to our complacency is the same as what Philip experienced. The clear call to go south. To put ourselves out there in a spirit-led place where we're outside of our comfort zone. A place where we don't know what we're going to engage with. You know, that we know that we're going to bump into somebody who doesn't know church or is not in, acquainted with Jesus very well. But we still have to be somewhat prepared for anything because we don't know exactly what it's going to look like yet. For a friend of mine, it was in a McDonald's dining room one day. He felt the Spirit of the Lord tell him to go and speak to a random man who was eating his burger in a McDonald's dining room. And said, go up to that man and tell him he's a good father. So he's like, okay, goes up, excuse me, sir, you're going to think I'm a real idiot for this, but I'm a Christian, and I believe God told me to tell you right now that he he wants me to tell you that you're a good father. The man began weeping. Turns out the guy actually is in the middle of a custody battle with a bitter thing with his wife and that sort of thing, and, and it broke his heart, and he was able to minister to that man and lead him to Jesus and talk him through some stuff in his own life. For me one day, it was the back alley of, of, out of Flinders Lane one day when I saw movement behind a dumpster. You're not supposed to go to those places, but there was a guy shooting up at the back of the dumpster there. You've got to be prepared for anything if you go into these places where the Spirit leads you. <laughs> for us today, well, who knows the context that God, Jesus will put you in if you say, yes, I'll go. The second principle feeds off the first one. If you go you will see God produce fruit in the desert. See, it's only when we get out on those isolated places that we see what God has in store for us. God had a, trick, God had a pretty good track record of doing that in the Old Testament. I mean, just think about Abraham and Sarah. 
He's living out in Mesopotamia, off, you know, up near like ancient Iraq. And God says, I want you to move. Go towards Canaan. And imagine that conversation. Sarah's going, fine, what's our forwarding address so we can look after our mail and stuff? Uh, I don't know, honey. What do you mean? Well, well, Canaan, yeah, I know the postcode. I just don't know the street yet. I don't know any other details. I'm just going to go. God was like that. Philip was told to head south. And upon obeying that simple direction, the opportunity became clear. And the opportunity that Jesus put across his path was an outstanding, amazing opportunity where he was not going to fall on his face. See, when you go, Jesus will honor that obedience and put a right opportunity in your path that you can handle. That's the beauty of this thing. And this is the opportunity that comes Philip's way. Along the highway comes a caravan of commuters. Among them is the treasurer of ancient Ethiopia. The region being spoke about here was south of Egypt along the Red Sea. That's a little bit north of what modern-day Ethiopia is. Today we would call it Sudan. And uh, so ancient Ethiopia is now is what Sudan is uh, now. He was employed to serve Candace, which was a title given to the queen mother. In Ethiopia, the king was considered the child of the sun and therefore was considered too holy to become involved in secular affairs. And his mother would actually do the, 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 take over the responsibility of all the secular planning and, and infrastructure of the, of the um, nation over the monarchy. As treasurer, this guy here that we're talking about here would have been doing her bidding, serving the kingdom, serving the king, obviously, but working for Candace as, as his immediate superior. The man we're reading about has signs of devotion, but also some issues with religion. He's most certainly a Jew and most likely a proselyte. He's been converted, not born into it. A lot of people actually did convert to Judaism back in that day. There was a bit of a resurgence of the religion because they kind of liked the stability and the, and the, the, um, the, the sort of the boundaries put into place there and the, the idea of one God versus polytheism and, and the idea of, of actually having formality and good things in worship rather than the awful pagan practices that happened. A lot of people came to Judaism. They were attracted to, its, to how it presented itself and the moral code that came with it. He's definitely not a Gentile, and the honor of that, of the first Gentile conversion, comes later in Luke's account here. We see glimpses of his devotion on display in this passage. He's obtained a scroll from Isaiah's work, which wouldn't have been cheap for him to obtain. And we see that he's in transit from Jerusalem to Ethiopia. So he's just come back from feasts and acts of worship in Jerusalem. Now, scholars tell us that this would have been a 2,400K round trip. Two and a half thousand Ks. They say to get one way would have taken 30 days to travel. He might have stayed a month to worship and observe feasts and then taken another month's travel to go home again. A quarter of this man's year is devoted to his religion. Is a quarter of my year devoted? I don't know. I don't really want to look at my diary right now. He's devoted, but he's also a eunuch. And this puts him on the outer of his own faith. He's a man who had certain parts of his anatomy removed. And this was seen by those in Jewish authority as a barrier to worship. Deuteronomy uh, 23.1 says that no one who has been emasculated by crushing or cutting may enter the assembly of the Lord. The priests and the Pharisees would bar these incomplete men from having first class status within Judaism. 
And despite the tremendous commitment of travel he made each year to observe this faith, he would be forever limited to the status of proselyte of the gate. In other words, his worship experience could not proceed past the court of the Gentiles. The temple itself would have been massively off limits and he would have been, he copped all sorts of trouble had he tried to set foot in there. There was a man-made line put in place to limit how far his experience of faith he could go. He has an understanding and interest in God. But all his life he's been told that he isn't good enough. To his credit though, he hasn't given up. He's still seeking. He's still looking for answers to his questions here. His heart's cry echoes the one that was found in the Samaritan woman and her people at large. If only someone could make these things clear. Wasn't that the Samaritan woman? When the Messiah comes, he'll explain these things. It'll make sense then. And this guy here, I'm reading something from Isaiah. I need someone to make this clear to me. Same cry, make this clear to me. So when the Spirit prompts us to go south, and when we say yes to that call, we find that God has already been hard at work behind the scenes. And that in those places, despite how isolated and out there we think we are, we're sure to find people who are open and ready to be ministered to. And he ordains us to be able to do it. The third principle of evangelism is this. Merge with the conversation. The very place Jesus tells Philip to stand intersects with the path of an individual who is at that very moment engaging with a time of verbal faith exploration. As the chariot passes by, Philip hears the words of Isaiah the prophet being read aloud. In that culture, reading in silence didn't happen because they weren't trained to read like that. They were trained to pronounce their words when they learned to read. Things were, you know, this meant that Philip was able to hear the faith journey that the Ethiopian was on. And lo and behold, he's on a faith journey exploring Jesus, and he doesn't know it yet. He's reading about Jesus. The portion of text that he was reading from was from Isaiah 53. And the more complete passage, which just happens to be one of my absolute favorite parts of the Bible, goes a bit like this, verses 1 to 12. Who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by others, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised, and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our sufferings, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before his shearers are silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, yet who of his generation protested? For he was cut from the land of the living, for the transgression of my people he was punished. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. 
Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. It's this passage that Philip hears reading out as he walks alongside the chariot. And he, asked if he under, and he asked this Ethiopian if he understood what he just read out. When you think about it, the response of the Ethiopian is actually quite sad. This is the gist of what he's saying. I want to know about this God thing. I've done all the rites and the rituals, and I've done all I can to align myself with this God of Israel. I even make a three-month annual pilgrimage to Jerusalem to learn all I can. But through things beyond my own um, control, my position in the community has caused me to fall short. I can't get close enough to learn. There are too many barriers and too many people telling me I am unworthy to do or know more. This religion thing seems hard to fathom. I know there's truth in there. But in all my devotion, no one has gotten close enough to make that truth clear to me yet. See, if we keep all the trappings of religion, but also keep the unchurched and the uninitiated at arm's length, we'll do no better than the Pharisees of the first century. But Philip here was at ground zero, or as Viv Long from Wang Hai would say, in the coalface. He was the man for the job and he was in the right place to make something amazingly clear for this man. And by being in the right God-ordained spot, he was able to simply slide into the conversation that was already occurring. See, I've seen this time and time again, and particularly over the last 10 years, I think there's been a shift. That when we bring up spiritual things and conversations out there, it doesn't seem to have the shocking effect it once did. There used to be a saying that you never mention religion and politics in conversations. And I think we're kind of starting to get away from that nowadays. It helps that our nation's politicians behave like children and give us a lot to laugh about. But issues of spirituality are less taboo nowadays as well. There's a much deeper awareness or fascination with spiritual things. And people are talking about it. Now, admittedly, not all of it is positive. But if we tune in our ear and hear what is being said aloud, we'll find that what we have to share is a natural fit for what is already going on out there. People are searching for clarity, particularly spiritual clarity. We've got the clearest thing out. The question that Philip was merging into in his, in his case was found in verse 34. Who is this prophet talking about? Himself or someone else? And it's this question that leads to his ability to begin teaching this man about the anticipated Jewish Messiah. The image this eunuch is grappling in is pretty, pretty full on in his mind. You know, we're seeing a, reading about a man who's been led around and knowingly prepared for slaughter. It's a picture of a man deeply humiliated and experiencing no appearance of human justice. It's someone condemned to bear the sinful ways of man. Loads of confronting images that this guy's dealing with. The first century Jewish explanation of this passage was quite dismissive. And the party line of the time was that the servant songs of Isaiah, which is what this three in Isaiah that are about that are messianic 
they, their party line was that these songs were about the nation, Israel as a nation as a whole. They didn't see a messianic link in these passages. The first century Jews in their context of living under Roman rule and all the other dynasties before that time were expecting a more triumphant and gratifying end to their messianic story. Many felt the time needed uh, seemed right for the Messiah to emerge and they were spot on in that area. But their shortfall was that they never in their wildest dreams considered their Messiah to be a suffering servant. That's why they dismissed Jesus out of hand and ordered him killed, even when presented with the possibility that he might be the one. But the apostles and eventually Philip knew otherwise. The suffering servant was central to Jesus' teaching about himself. In Mark 10.45, Jesus said, The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. In Luke 22, Jesus links his story with this story in the Isaiah scroll by quoting verse 12 of what I just read. It is written, He was numbered with the transgressors. And I tell you that this must be fulfilled in me. Yes, what is written about me is reaching its fulfillment. In their defense, the priests couldn't teach what they didn't know. And this would be to the detriment of the young Ethiopian man here had it not been for the availability of a young man who did know. Jesus was the Messiah the prophets spoke of. He would face the humiliation, injustice and punishment that Isaiah predicted. And now that Philip knew where to start, he jumps into the chariot and continues the conversation. And the Spirit showed Philip where there was a gap in the traffic. He's just managed to merge seamlessly into an already existing discussion. And finally, principle four is this. Send them on their way rejoicing. Starting with this passage in Isaiah 53, Philip went on to explain the gospel, the good news. When you're an evangelist, you bear glad tidings, right? He was bearing glad tidings. Imagine having only the Old Testament to explain the gospel, by the way. That's what Philip had in his hand. That's all he had. The temple had presented the idea that God was watching, but from arm's length for this Ethiopian man. But with the knowledge that the church had grown in through the apostles and then Stephen and, and from what Philip had seen with his own eyes, he knew that the temple and its leaders was no longer the final authority on God. Jesus was. Jesus, in his final authority, completed the work and representation of the temple practices. And everywhere a believer went, including beyond Egypt and into Ethiopia, would now become holy ground. Through faith in Jesus, this Ethiopian would never be seen as a second-rate member of God's people, but would enjoy the full experience of knowing God. Perhaps Philip might have even moved the eunuch's eye a few chapters ahead in Isaiah's writing. Another prophetic piece. Let no foreigners who have found themselves to be, you know, who have bound themselves to the Lord say, "The Lord will surely exclude me from His people." And let no eunuch complain, "I'm only a dry tree." For this is what the Lord says to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose what pleases me and hold fast to my covenant. To them I will give within my temple and its walls a memorial and a name better than sons and daughters. And I'll give them an everlasting name will endure forever. We're talking about a promise here, even that eunuchs would know Jesus in its full. They, the rules of the temple would not, would not be any, a barrier for this man to know God. There was always a day coming where the infinite God would not be contained in laws and man-made temples. And for Philip and that Ethiopian, that day was now. The good news of the gospel that Philip could tell this Ethiopian was that despite his incomplete anatomy, his heart could be made complete in Christ. 
And by having his heart restored, his right standing with God could be restored and he could be everything he could be. The temple might reject him, but Christ would not. Instead, the dwelling place of God, the temple of God, would become this incomplete man. With every experience of salvation that we've read about in Acts, there has been a constant theme present, rejoicing. At every point of revival, there is great joy. And in this instance, in the Negev desert, it's no different. They eventually go past a little wadi along the road and stop. And the Ethiopian accepts Christ and then goes to the waters of baptism, making it public that he's now a member of God's true people and he was happy to identify himself with them. And again, in true evangelistic style, that seems to be where Philip's work stops. And that's where he swept away. But the parting comment of his text is that the Ethiopian eunuch went away rejoicing. The second century bishop Arrhenius wrote that upon returning to his home country, this Ethiopian man became a missionary of the gospel to his own people. And that he can be credited with overseeing the first ever African revival that continues with the fury today. The rejoicing continues today when we lead people to Christ. The story of rejoicing through the centuries continues to us in 2012. The guy in the back alley in Melbourne that I come across moved to Queensland and got himself clean. The kids who responded to the gospel on Friday night had reason to rejoice. And we will see them, I guarantee it. The people you influence for the gospel and prison make things clear to them we'll do the same thing rejoice so the four principles go south get out of what's comfortable sometimes two prepare to see fruit in the wilderness if you go God will do something mighty through you three merge with a conversation that's already happening if you don't know where to start find out what they're saying and go with it don't agree with it but go with where they're at. And four, be prepared to see some rejoicing happen around you. As I wind up this morning, I'm going to finish with a thought that came across my desk as I did this study. It says this, an angel could direct Philip, an angel directed Philip to go down to meet with this man. But the angel could not do Philip's work of preaching the gospel. That privilege was given to men, not to angels. In other words, when it comes to the unchurched people in our surroundings, if it's not us that shares our faith, it's no one. There were two groups representing God in that first century setting. First, there was the Jewish elitist system of religion. It had failed this Ethiopian, and he never felt so alienated from God as when he did when he visited Jerusalem. But there was another group, the followers of Christ. It was through one of their number that this man was steered right and he ended up knowing God in a way he never knew possible. That's the power of personal evangelism. When I came to Christ, and even when I became a minister, I didn't sign up to be another cog in a religious machine. I signed up to lead people to a vibrant and intimate knowledge of God through the Jesus that lives in me. And that's our cause together. We have a vibrant and living Jesus living in all of us. We share that. We're going to see a very rejoicing city as we go about it. Let's pray.